Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Zoheb, CEO and co-founder of Rails, an accounting data platform that's raised over $15 million in funding. Zoheb, thanks for chatting with me today. My pleasure. So to kick things off, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? My name is Zoheb, co-founder CEO at Rails, classically trained as a physician. Long story. I left medical school. And recently, before joining Rails, I was part of a company which was distributing Intuit through partners, referrals, and so forth. So I was part of the provisioning API side of things. And that's how I got an insight into accounting data and the challenges that the developers who were trying to access uh, Intuit's accounting data were having. Met my co-founder, Derek, and started Rails. So I have to dig a bit further into that background. So tell us about making that switch. So you left medical school to, to move into these new ventures, or when did you actually make the switch? I actually never wanted to go to medical school. I ended up in medicine because of my parents. So they're both surgeons. So ask any Asian kid, a brown kid, their careers decided at birth by their parents. You have an option of becoming a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, or an engineer. Everything else is off the table. So I think that's exactly what happened with me as well. Naturally, my parents, uh, being doctors, decided that, hey, all five kids are going to be doctors. So... That's how I ended up in medical school. And I decided to leave um, as, uh, as part of my, my degree. I was uh, creating polymer plastics and created a way to fold them to dissipate um, forces around a structure. I ended up building a bike company. And that was my forte into entrepreneurship. And I see you sold a company in 2016, and then it looks like you sold another company in 2019. Can you talk us through those acquisitions? Yeah. So the first one was a bike company that I built, and we were building hardware. But at the core of it was the technology, which was driving everything from navigation and collection of data to create safer, smarter routes. And so we ended up selling that to a partner here in Ontario a manufacturing partner to VW and Volkswagen Group called Warren. So we ended up uh, becoming part of that group. It was like, I would say to everybody that companies are not sold. Everybody says you sold the company. They're always bought. So someone who's looking to expand their business, their distribution, or going to acquire a company so that they can add to the revenue, to the customers, and so on and so forth. So that's what happened with our first company. Ended up joining them, stayed on for 16 months before I left. The second company was basically, it, it was a hard sell into government institutions for energy. So we ended up selling to the first customer who started using us. Primarily because that customer was overseas in Northern Africa, expanding into Asia. And they said, hey, we'll just acquire you. And none of the founders had uh, the aspiration to move from Canada. So we said, why not? And at that time, it was immensely hard to raise money for 
energy startups uh, because most of the pieces were, I wouldn't say exhausted, but they didn't have good experience in the energy markets. So funding was was not what we saw back in 2019-2020. Makes a lot of sense. And a couple of questions that we like to ask, really just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder. First one is, what founder do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? You might have heard about Garim Bank out of Bangladesh. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Yunus has been the founder who created Green Bank and he was in microfinance. And his thesis was that if you're poor in Bangladesh, you're no different than someone who's poor in North America. And if I can give you a micro loan to turn yourself around, your struggles are going to be the same no matter where you're in the world. And his thesis was challenged across the globe very heavily. What I like about Dr. Judas is he's very much driven by what is this product going to do to my end user versus is my product going to make me a lot of money? So that mission critical mindset of what am I doing that's going to have an effect on someone is is what drives me. And I think that's why I love uh, how Dr. Yunus deployed Garim and actually proved everybody wrong. His loans uh, were defaulting less than 1%. Everybody actually returned the money and I actually borrowed more. And uh, he brought millions of people out of poverty and ended up expanding Garim here in North America as well. So Dr. Yunus is definitely my pick for the founder to, to admire. Nice. Yeah, I've heard a lot about him, but I haven't taken the time to really dig in and, and study him and you know, really understand everything that he did. I think there's a book about him, right? Or did he write a book? He did. Nice. He did. I think it's called The Story of Three Zeros. Nice. I'll add that to my, my list. And, and on the topic of books, are there any other books that have had a major impact on you as a founder? I wouldn't say impact. The way I treat books is ultimately knowledge is power. And that holds true. Some books have, you know, pieces which are super useful, like one or two chapters. The whole book might not be very meaningful. But the way I treat books is, is it adding to my knowledge or is it adding to my information? So I have, I have a list of books which are only informative. They're only adding to my information. And then there are books which I say, you know what, they're adding to my knowledge. And my spectrum goes from information. And if I have a lot of information and I keep reading about it, it turns into knowledge. So I don't say there's one book that has an impact. It's a collection of books. Also depends on what direction I'm heading. So I have leisure reading. I have reading that I do for, for my everyday business success. So I can't put a thumb on one, but my favorite one has been The Alchemy. It's a short read. You can literally finish it in an hour or so, mm -hmm. sitting by the pool. Just has tons and tons of hidden messages. So that's my interesting read. Nice. I love that. Now let's talk a bit more about Rails. So can you just walk us through at a high level what the company does and, and what the product does? So we are the single API to pull business financial data. That's the one liner. What you do with that financial data is very unique to Rails. And accessing that financial data is easy, but using that financial data is hard. Primarily because the source is accounting and now commerce and banking is getting added to it. Mm -hmm. But accounting data is complex. You have 
different accounting standards, different chart of accounts across different accounting systems, hundreds of different types of transactions, ledgers. And there's also a human element, bookkeepers, entrepreneurs, accountants who are putting data into these systems. And there's a saying that accounting data is questionable at best. (laughs) (laughs) So we exist to turn that questionable data into useful data, into reliable data, into data that talks back to you, into a data that is much easier to create use cases for your small businesses. For example, if I have to put it into three big buckets, I would put it in embedded finance, which makes operational life easy for small business customers to do automated payables, receivables, ACH, as well as reconciling your banking data to your ERP data and doing automated bookkeeping. The the other side of it is the banks. How do they have a better relationship with small businesses? And the only way they can have a better relationship with small business if they understand them better. And there's nothing better than data to understand your small business. So pulling data on small business and having a 360 holistic picture of their financial health will equip you better to give them products that they need and can benefit them. How do you meet the liquidity needs of small business is only going to get answered by the data that you're pulling from them on a real-time basis. And then last piece is access to capital, equitable access to capital without any bias. And again, that's uh, driven by data. How do you go from traditional sources of data, i.e. credit scores, personal guarantees, to new and better sources of data? How do you add more to underwriting teams so they have a better understanding of the small business that they're underwriting? So those are the three, three buckets that Rails plays in. And we make the lives of other bankers easy, our small businesses easy, as well as our underwriting teams much more easier. And can you take me back to 2020 when the company was first starting? What was it about this problem that made you and your co-founder say, yes, this is it. Let's go after this problem. Yeah, we were saying, or at least I was talking to way too many companies within the Intuit ecosystem who were accessing accounting data, but they weren't able to utilize that accounting data because it wasn't, we in our world call it the normalization. So what that really means is, are all data objects transformed into some sort of a common data model? You know, is it ready to use without any additional processing? Is the data enriched for any missing accounting fields? You know, and how up to date is. So ultimately, you know, is the data reliable or not? So that's the question that was being asked over and over again by companies who are building alternative finance, companies building cash management solutions, and so on and so forth. And the more I was talking to them, like getting access to data is is easy. There, There are multiple players out there who are doing that. But utilizing that data is immensely hard, especially for developers who have no accounting knowledge. And, you know, for companies who have no inside data teams to actually massage this data before you use it. And it's not like your banking data where you have like 
debits, credits, KYB, KYC. Yes, there's normalization and enrichment that's needed on the banking data, but it's not as complex and complicated. So that's uh, where I started to look for a solution. And I met my founder, Derek, a super smart guy, um, top five mathematical minds in Canada, lead quant at KPMG at a very early, early 20s, was building top-line revenue financing company. And he showed me a normalization engine that he built to underwrite high-risk businesses. And that's where the conversation started. Why build a, just a lending company? Why not build something much bigger that a multitude of use cases companies and banks can use? Why can't we be the platform for others to build on top of us? So, so that was Genesis. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host, and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now, back to today's episode. And when it comes to building trust, that has to be mission critical for you, right? Because I'm guessing the information that you're providing or the data that you're providing, your customers are using that to make important decisions and the stakes can be high if that data is incorrect or wrong in, in any way. So what have you done to really build that trust and credibility with your customers and really get them to trust you and, and give you a chance? Because that's something that you know every startup does struggle with. You're absolutely right. I think the first and foremost is you and your team. That's the first line of trust defense, I would say. If your team knows and has seen the problem firsthand and understands it really well and can guide your customer, that puts the first building block of trust. The second building block of trust is the product itself. Is it what you say it is? You know, often it's very hard in the product Genesis, and it's very typical of sales teams to over-promise and under-deliver. And I've seen and worked with a lot of sales founders who will go and promise the world, but really they don't have it. I'm like, you, you go promise your customer a Cadillac when you haven't built a wheel. So that's a big piece of trust. Say as is, understand what your customer truly really needs today versus what the big blue sky could be. So product is is a big, big foundation stone for, for building that trust. And it's as simple as if you told them it, it does X, it should do X. And targeting tech companies who, who are willing to take a bet on you mm -hmm. is a much easier sell than trying to sell to a bank from day one. It's not going to happen. It's a very hard sell. You don't have somewhat of a mature product. You don't have any SOC or any of the certifications that are needed around data security and so on and so forth. So you might not pass the stress test of a big bank, but it's much easier to go and sell to a tech company, uh, you know, Series A, Series B, Series C type companies who are building product at the speed of flight. And if they can cut the development time from six months to a couple of weeks and save cost from six to seven devs to one dev, I'm like, they'll take a chance on you. And have you started yet to cross the chasm into the more traditional financial institutions and banks, or are you still focused right now on just 
gobbling up as much market share as you possibly can in the more kind of fintech focused areas. So we're now very heavily focused on the enterprise space and the banking space. And we have made a conscious decision a year and a half ago of focusing primarily on banks because we understood that space well and we, we cracked the code primarily in terms of how we distribute it. And we are deploying, actually, we announced the product yesterday at FIS Emerald Conference, which is one of our largest partners and distributors. So through them, we are now deploying it to, to hundreds of banks. So we're very focused on the banking market now. And when it comes to your market category, how are you thinking about your market category? Is it accounting data as a service or what's your thought there? Well, like it's data as a service rather than accounting data as a service. And I would say it's financial data as a service is where we are. The business or the small business or the medium-sized business or the large business has multitude of disparate data sets. Though they all come to combine in an accounting system as the business matures over time. But if you understand the metamorphosis of a small business, the first thing that they do is register a business, go to their bank and open up a bank account. I'm like, no entrepreneur actually starts a business thinking that, hey, I really want to open up an accounting account. So the first thing they do is come up with an idea. They need to put money in, opens up a bank account. They'll probably... Second thing that they're going to do is, hey, how do I get money in? And they're going to think about a commerce or a POS terminal. And then I think when they hire their first employee, they might have to pay them payroll. And that's when they start thinking about, okay, payroll, QuickBooks has a payroll and ERP system. They'll have to file taxes and the company is becoming a bit mature. You know, through that whole metamorphosis of the company, different financial repositories will be created. Now, ultimately, the accounting will rule them all and will become the source of truth. But as the progression and the growth of a business happens, goes from your bank account to payroll account, POS to, to, to accounting. So it has to be financial data. And within the category, I think if, if someone's thinking about financial data, they're thinking it right. The way we think about it is accounting is the source of truth. How do we tackle the businesses who are a year old, two years old? And how do we tackle the businesses who are a month old or two months old? And how do we tackle the businesses who are thinking about opening up a business and trying to get things going, working with the bank? What can we do for them? So the first step for us is when we do the aggregation is pulling data if it exists. If it doesn't exist, then what we do is we create benchmarking around businesses who have already filed a tax with IRS. How do we create a financial benchmark to understand you? So what we do is we pull similar businesses in similar geography, and you can zoom into two similar businesses around you. So someone's opening up a pizza store in, in New York, we, we can zoom in two similar pizza stores around you and can understand what the macroeconomic situation was like and if you're going to sink or swim. Now, once we start to aggregate the data, then what everybody in the industry calls normalization, we call it standardization. So we'll standardize the data on a flat file, on a common model, and so on and so forth, or step two. And then we go to normalization and normalize it on a much deeper level. So it becomes much easier for our developers and our banks to work with. And then lastly is we attribute it back to different use cases. 
And the way we think about the financial data is through the lens of a small business. And how do they go from thinking of starting up a business and the whole life cycle of growth? Hmm. Super interesting. And can you talk to us a little bit about the growth that you're seeing today and adoption and any metrics that you can share that just highlight some of the traction that you're seeing? Our audience loves to hear metrics. 120 plus companies on our platform today using us. Our biggest deployment is with FIS going into a little over 320 banks using us. We're forecasting around 3 million daily transactions to go through our system over the course of next uh, four months. As we take banks live, we're fully integrated into the FIS core in their new core, which is, which is being deployed. So looking forward to bring them on. Banks from regional all the way to populous banks using us to do different use cases. Team Super Lean. I'm not a big believer of let's add 20 more people to, to solve a solution. So we keep the team super lean uh, in terms of keeping a check on our cost. But we're excited to actually service hundreds and thousands of small businesses as a function of different banks coming online with us. And that's the type of growth that I think founders listening in would dream of achieving and, and everyone wants to achieve that. If you reflect on the success you've had so far, what do you think you've gotten right? You know, like what did you just nail or, or what have you done tactic wise to really contribute to that growth and achieve that growth? I think one thing that we started to understand was, do we want to service the banks, the fintechs, or do we really care about small businesses? who will eventually benefit from what we're building. And it just goes back to Dr. Eunice's thinking and, you know, what he was building to, like, who is eventually going to benefit? So that's when we made a conscious decision of if we only service fintechs, we'd probably bring on maybe 5,000, 10,000 small businesses, even at mature fintechs. And the attrition rate is high because fintechs close down fast. And then we were seeing the market to slow down and we're seeing some companies pulling back and we have seen the recession, like the glimpse of it at least, markets pulling back. So we made a conscious decision, okay, what would be our distribution channel where we can actually target hundreds and thousands of small businesses? So that's when we actually shifted gears to start to work with banking cores and distribution into multitude of financial institutions and fintechs who would eventually service hundreds and thousands of small businesses. So that's where we start to shift our architecture, our engineering resources, our go-to-market resources, and just start to focus on, on one thing and one thing only, rather than let's go after everything. So we stop doing, let's throw everything on the wall and see what sticks, to let's just go after one thing and one thing only and focus on the cores. And if you reflect on the go-to-market journey so far, what's been your greatest go-to-market challenge and how do you overcome it? Building a sales team sucks. Um, <laughs> uh, finding good salespeople sucks. I'm like, there aren't a lot out there, uh, I would say. The good ones are very hard to get. So I think the focus should always be ultimately who's going to use it. So that's where we start to focus on. If we go after like one-off banks and start to build like a really big sales team, I think that would be the demise of us. We're just not good at it. And when I say good, I, I mean world-class, phenomenal Salesforce-type sales team. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about 
building a team of 10 to 15 and, you know, averaging average sales numbers. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about really kick-ass sales team. So that's where we realized that, you know, FIS type people know how to sell to banks. We need to learn how to sell to FIS. We need to know how to learn, sell to bottom line and Jack Henry's and Fiserv and so on and so forth. And how do we integrate with the core and, 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 and work with them? So our weak point had been sales teams. And that's also where our new strategy of banking cores is doing great for us. Now, having said that, we didn't say, hey, let's just kill the whole sales team. We, we still sell to fintechs, which is more automated, self-serve. We're focusing more on dev docs. Uh, we're focusing more on developer experience. We're also very focused with our sales team and very targeted in terms of how they spend their time. And if you could give yourself one piece of advice with everything that you know now, if you were just starting the company again today, what would that piece of advice be? I think get to know your founder a lot more before you start a company. You know, spend as much time as you can with your co-founder. When we started the company, we didn't know each other. We were strangers coming together because we knew the idea, we knew the market very well. Uh, it seemed like the stars were aligning for us to, to start it together. And also COVID didn't help. Working remotely didn't help. So don't just get to know your founder on a transactional work basis. Really get to know them. So the challenges that we had early days, I'm like, they're gone. I'm like, I think super well with my founder. It has taken me years to understand and to know. Mm -hmm. But um, one piece of advice is always know your founder really well. And final question here before we wrap, let's zoom out into the future. So three years from today, can you just paint a picture for us of what that vision is for the company and what it's going to look like? We want to make the life of small business insanely easy. The whole metamorphosis of small business that I talked about, I don't want them to be thinking about, hey, I want to open up a accounting system, then I want to hire a bookkeeper, then I want to you know, make sure that all the books are closed so I can file the taxes, I have to call them up. That whole exercise that a small business owner does, I want to take that away from them. And I, wanna, I want them to focus on the work that they love and they do every day. So we're on a mission to automate that completely. And the whole idea is to automate the bookkeeping piece of it. They go, they just open up a bank account. We take it off which accounting system and they want to use. We populate all the data into it. We reconcile it. We close the books automatically for them and they can do one-click taxes and they're good to do their payroll. So all that area of accounting, bookkeeping, back office running, like we want to we wanna make that insanely easy for the small business. And more so we want to help the banks give small businesses what they need rather than blindly pre-approve them for a product that they don't even need which is a complete mess. So so I want to make sure that uh, that's completely automated as we as we build different data products for our small business customers. Amazing. Well, we are up on time, so we're going to have to wrap here. Before we do, if people want to follow along with your journey as you continue to build and execute, where should they go? LinkedIn is the best place. I always respond uh, to anybody who needs help uh, and is looking out for, for any answer to a question that I can help with on an intro. So, so follow me on LinkedIn. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat, talk about what you're building and, and share this vision. I've really enjoyed our conversation and I know our audience is going to as well. So thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed it. 
All right, keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you on the next episode. 